Welcome to Customer Value Cast, a podcast dedicated to helping you acquire, retain, and expand more customers by putting measurable value at the heart of your customer lifecycle. Join our host, Ross Fulton, founder and CEO of ValueWise, as he dives deep into how reoccurring revenue businesses are maximizing their growth and valuations with the industry's leading experts and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Ross Fulton. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Customer Value Cast, the show dedicated to putting measurable value at the heart of your customer lifecycle so you can retain and expand more customers in your recurring revenue enterprise. Today, I am very excited. I'm very excited to welcome Jeffrey Moore to the show. Jeff is an author, a speaker, an advisor, really focused on the market dynamics surrounding business innovation. Jeff's expertise in business innovation and transformation has been hugely influential on my own professional journey, especially through the books, Crossing the Chasm, Inside the Tornado, Escape Velocity, Zones to Win. They've all been incredible pieces of work for me and I know many, many of you out there. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on your show, Ross. Yes. Uh, I think one of the reasons that, Jeff, your work has been so compelling to me is that I share your passion on really how enterprise technology companies can and should embrace and tackle disruption innovation in relation to their their business models and that being I'd say in my my view please validate this for for us in the audience but the focus of your book zones to win and for those listening that maybe haven't had a chance to check out zones to win perhaps you could kick off by just giving us a very quick overview of the four zones model that you have in that book well, the zones came out of the fact that you know, established enterprises have a, a set of conflicting objectives because on the one hand, they want to maintain the inertial momentum of their established, what we might call their legacy businesses or their, their core businesses. At the same time, they know they have to participate in next generation opportunities. And that create a crisis of, of prioritization, particularly when it comes to allocating revenue and whatnot. And if you try to manage all those conflicting things in kind of one pot, they get caught up in each other. So the zone idea was, look, there are four legitimate zones of interest. Each one has its own operating model. Separate out your activities into the four zones and then, and then manage them accordingly. And the, so the performance zone is where you manage your core business. It's If you're a public company, it's everything you report out during your earnings call. So it's all of your sales accomplishments and all of your product and service revenue accomplishments. That's the performance zone. And that funds the other three zones. It's also the thing investors kind of key to as to how well you're doing. And by the way, it's also the zone that delivers all your value to the world. So in a sense, we're always in service to the performance zone eventually. The productivity zone is all the cost centers that you run behind the scenes in order to make the performance zone work. And often you have more people in the productivity zone than you have in the performance zone, but they're all focused on essentially making the performance zone more efficient, more effective, complying with regulations, et cetera. In an established enterprise, that's probably 90 plus percent of your budget is in those two zones. The incubation zone is where you wanna take on things that are essentially outboard of your current model. They'll, they will either 
potentially cannibalize the model. But even if they don't, they're not aligned with it. They're not at scale yet. They don't have enough process history to use process very well. They can't forecast. So they're irritant. <laughs> and so the incubation zone is designed to say, okay, let's take the, that zone offline and manage it much more like a VC portfolio, not for financial purposes. We're not trying to be a venture capitalist, but we're trying to use the venture capital operating model to hold incubation investments accountable to getting to the next milestone of growth or of opportunity or not. I mean, venture is, is all about, look, fast failure is okay in venture, slow failure is not. And so, and, and, and the game in venture is always win or learn. And so that's, that's how you play. The, and that's not the performance zone. The performance zone is like, just win, please. <laughs> and, and so it's, 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 so those are three zones are different. And then the fourth zone we call the transformation zone. That zone is often not occupied at all, and that's fine. But the transformation zone is a special place when you say, we're going to now dramatically reallocate resources in a way that potentially could put at risk our core business. But we feel like it's time and it's the way the world wants us to go. And so then what you're trying to do in the transformation zone is reorient the entire enterprise to shift its, its inertial momentum away from the old and commit to the new. And what you can't afford during a transformation is to waffle. It's a unique management model in the sense that the CEO has to reorient the entire corporation and be very disciplined. And if people try to go the wrong way, they have to get them out of the boat because it's a time where you have to all row in the same direction. So those are the four zones. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for that. When I looked at that model, I sort of, I literally had to put it down and go for a walk and process because it really, really struck me in terms of how it aligns. And I want to sort of understand, Jeff, how you would interpret what we at ValueWise are focused on is helping organizations, B2B technology enterprises, deal with what I see as a transformation of their performance zone as defined by the emergence of the recurring revenue business model, subscription, consumption, that sure was spearheaded by pioneers like Salesforce many years ago, but for many enterprises, it's a real evolution they're having to drive right now. Is that a fair sort of description to say, hey, well, with the performance zone, we're transforming how companies measure success, measure financial results, private and public investors are now looking at key metrics like net revenue retention. That is requiring and driving a transformation of that performance zone in these enterprises. And so you've got this clash between, well, I don't know if it's a clash or a conflict or a, or a merging of these two zones when it comes to this business model. How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really depends on where the company is. So yeah. I can imagine a company who's very early to the game, who's been essentially traditional, they might start by just incubating this model, right? Mm -hmm. They might say, look, we need to get much more customer centric. Our performance zone is designed to do that right now, but we are going to take a portion of our business or perhaps a new acquisition or whatever. We're going to get ourselves smart about how to do this in some contained way where we can learn fast. The transformation is when you realize, and I see it a lot in the tech sector with all the companies that had to go from a license and maintenance model to a SaaS model. And, and, and the revenue recognition issues and the sales compensation issues and the, I mean, blah, blah, blah. So that, that was transformational. Now, it was transformational in the sense 
that they had, it was, it was all internal transformation. It wasn't external. The world had changed externally. They had to change internally. But still, they had to get their company off of the old model and onto the new model. And with salespeople in particular, if you're not careful, the sales comp can have them still stay on the old model, even when everybody strategically wants to go to the new one. If you think about companies that are further down the journey, they say, no, 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 no. We're SaaS, we've, we've been doing SaaS for a long time. We're in the performance zone. And then what we're discovering is, yeah, but you know what? When we did the performance zone before, we thought customer success was a productivity zone function. We thought it was an afterthought. It was kind of like, yeah, make the customer happy so that they come back. And now we're realizing, no, it is a critical success factor for the performance zone. That's new news. And figuring out where the customer success and the product support organizations, how do they interact with the performance zone? That's work in progress right now, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think it's that transformation of the approach to the, the customer life cycle and as we say the emergence of productivity functions strategies operational models becoming performance related is so interesting are you seeing that sort of sub transformation of productivity into performance around sort of these customer facing functions and operations being effectively driven pre-sale and post-sale, or are you seeing some, one, some aspects being done well and other aspects just really sort of being very early, dare I say, yet to cross the chasm as it relates to being adopted inside these enterprises? Clearly, customer success, first of all, customer success grew out of customer support historically, which was always right. a post-sales function. There was never any pre-sales at all. What I think people are realizing is if customer success, to take the value-wise focus, is going to be based on customer value realization, you realize, look, the economic equation is going to be determined by return on customer value realization. That's the game. I mean, we've been very ignorant about that. In the, in the product model, if our product worked, value realization was the customer's problem, wasn't our problem. But in a subscription model, it is, and then a retention and expansion and all that, it is our problem. So now all of a sudden we're trying to say, when can we start getting clues as to what the value realization journey should be for the customer? Because we don't know. And, and frankly, historic in my business career, I don't say we didn't care because we wanted to figure out what hot buttons we could push when we were selling stuff. But at the end of the day, we were competing against other product people to get a PO. And it was, it was about us. It wasn't about the customer. <laughs> and, and so this is a very, very different game. And so now the idea of if you have a customer success relationship established, so this customer is not new. They've been there for a while. Can you use that relationship to help direct the next generation of pre-sales engagement by getting signals about how we're doing? First of all, what is the value realization of this customer? What are they trying to get out of it? We think we know because we built the product to do some good stuff, but the truth is we don't really know what they're doing and we don't know if they're having any success. But our customer success team should, at least on the ground. And then I think it has to be supplemented with executive sponsor communication with more senior people who typically are above the day-to-day -day fray, but who are saying, you know, why did you budget for this? What are you trying to get out of this? And then bringing that kind of interrogation and diagnosis prescription model to the pre-sales thing. So instead of trying to come and say, hey, I want to sell you this, right? Hey, you've seen our new big offer for this. It's like, you know, we've been talking with you guys. We've been on a value realization journey with three years. I think you had some pretty good success here, but it feels like you still need to do more work over there. Is that right? that kind of conversation. Yep, yep. There's so much to unpack there, and I want to 
come back to certainly customer value realization and how that links to the concept of adoption, which is a concept that's been so fundamental and core to so much of your work. Uh, but quickly on the, you mentioned sort of sales compass as a, what I would describe as an organizational component, design component that we want to make sure is designed and operationalized appropriately to support the strategy that we know is going to help drive success as a recurring revenue enterprise, distinct from the perpetual licensing business model of, of yesteryear. It's certainly every single uh, technology enterprise I've worked in and that we I've served through ValueWise, silos are real. And those silos between organizational functions and those silos existing at the strategies of each of those functions, the operational models as defined by the technology and their approach to data, and then the design of their roles, responsibilities, incentivization models. And I used to certainly have a, a view and a vision that, hey, look, I think there's a bomb we can drop on the legacy organizational structures of technology enterprises and rebuild from the ground up and create a far more unified, integrated model that supports customer value realization and ultimately makes recurring revenue models work. 2022, that's nah, not going to happen. We're not going to that bomb doesn't exist, but the silos persist. How do you see sort of the role of these silos and, and what are you advising companies around how they integrate these silos to create that more integrated approach? So the first thing, we don't want to demonize silos. Silos is how you scale. If you're in a silo, I can get stuff done. Just leave me alone, I can get stuff done. And so we want to build, the silo discipline is not going to go away, but silos do interfere with a, the customer integration across functions. By the way, that was the whole point behind ERP 20, 30 years ago. SAP was going to make us more customer-centric. Didn't work out quite as well as we hoped, but the idea was we'd work across the silos. So I think we've got to realize we're going to be playing a game that is a, it's a grid, and the silos are going to stay there for, for functional integrity and for scalability, but they do create disconnects in the customer journey. We're sensing the customer's state and, and responding to it. So what you're seeing now, I think, is a performance zone, particularly the, the go-to-market, the customer-facing part of the performance zone, is now adding the customer success function, first of all, to sales renewals, which is a very different thing than getting new logos. By the way, the silos are pretty good at getting new logos. They're just not very good at keeping the logos because they, 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 they're very good at competing with other companies, but they're not as good at staying in touch with the customer after the competition's been, been won. So you need this other function. For example, take Salesforce, because you mentioned them, so the current chief revenue officer at Salesforce right now for the worldwide is a guy named Brian Millam. He had run the commercial sales thing, and he had then run all of customer success and professional services. And he has brought it all together under one org. And they've taken their, what they would call customer support, I would call product success. And they've taken customer success and product success and put that under one org. And so I think what that's all in response to is saying, we need to get better and better at this cross silo communications without deconstructing the silo. Yeah, yeah. And you, you sort of referenced that centralization of organizational designs and structures under that, how to put an exact time frame on it, let's call it the last five to 10 years of the CRO and or the CCO persona. And there's... I think we both know many, many fantastic leaders in those roles who are driving that centralization and integration in Salesforce, VMware, etc. What is fascinating to me is the dynamic of CRO and CCO. 
And in some cases, you see both, and they're sitting alongside each other in an, in an enterprise, other enterprises, no CRO, but a CCO, other enterprises, no CCO, but a CRO. And at the end of the day, I certainly am not one who gets hung up around, okay, what should the title be? The point is that there's a top-down centralized set of accountability around the value for customers. But where you do see both exist, do you think that's the right model or? I think if it tilts to CRO, I think you're tilting toward an organization that is still more into the new logo acquisition. If you're inside the tornado, if, you're, if there's a new category, then it's really important you capture the new customer base while the new budget is kind of all coming to market all at the same time. So when people adopt cloud computing or they adopt mobile computing or whatever it is, there's a window of less than a decade where basically everybody's going to put budget on the table to get into the new category. And whichever vendor gets the most of that budget is going to be what we call the gorilla. And they're going to have an outsized influence on the future of that industry and a very outsized proportion of the profits from that industry going forward. So during any tornado time, you want a CRO and frankly, you suppress the CCO because you want to get as many customers in the boat as fast as you can. Outboard of a tornado, it's the other way around. Outboard of a tornado, now it's like I want to be able to land and grow and expand my install base, take it into new product lines, go into adjacent use cases, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. That's a CCO-led world. And frankly, we pay, the one of the things that I think we do mistakenly, but I don't know if we're going to change it, you and I sure aren't going to change it, is we pay one comp for a dollar, regardless of whether it's new logo or it's a different skill set, it's a different investment the profile, it's a different time, the ROI periods are different. I mean, we need to be, but we haven't yet. We still have this sort of one pot of comp. And, and I think that when companies get into trouble around these issues, I think their comp system is part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. So we go back to the, the, the mission of integrating that enterprise organization across the customer life cycle. And from, for me, and we touched on this just before we hit the record button, We the concept of journeys starts to sort of enter most people's minds, right? Well, what is the journey of the customer? And surely, well, the journey is that uniting concept. I, I share with you my cynicism when it comes to the reality of customer journey and journey mapping in B2B today. But share your take on what customer journey mapping is today and what it should be. You and I are in violent agreement on this one. So customer <laughs> journey is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not really about the customer, it's about us. If you look at a customer journey map, at least the ones I see most of the time, it takes the customer, really a prospect at this point, and through a, market, a set of marketing motions and then and through a sales motions to get to a sales funnel and, and sales closure. And that's called the customer journey. But that's not about the customer, it's about us. The customer actually has a journey that they want to make. And we may not even be part of that journey. They're trying to change the value equation in their enterprise. And we need to figure out in what ways, and, and maybe we can inspire them to contemplate some new ways. Salesforce has this wonderful thing called Ignite. Most companies have some version of this thing where they, you do ideation with the customer. What's the art of the possible? Once the, the customer has a value objective, then the purpose then is, okay, how do I map backwards from that objective to what we can offer them. And this is why getting that customer success person involved pre-sales, because they often have very good ideas about how to do that more effectively than we might otherwise do, do so. But I think that's a real customer journey, which is one which starts with where the customer wants to go, not where mm -hmm. we want to go. Mm -hmm. And do you, I'm certainly a proponent of, and you used the term earlier, a prescriptive 
nature to that journey, i.e. certainly at the scale with, with, within an enterprise context, economically, it's not viable to go in with kind of that blank canvas to every single customer and say, hey, what would you like to achieve? How would you like to get there? And then say, okay, can we do that with this kind of collection of feature functionality we have in our product? Instead, we've got to take a prescriptive approach to say, hey, we're, we're experts in your type of organization and how you get value from our type of technology. Let us prescribe some outcomes that we think we can get you to, which will contribute to your big, hairy, audacious strategic goals. And we'll tell you how we're going to get you there. Do you agree or disagree? If you disagree, we're not going to acquire you as a customer. Is that a realistic approach to apply in an enterprise or am I just too idealistic with that? No, I think you're fine. I think the, the phrase that I find most useful for organizing that approach is we call it use cases right. and, and, and other people, whatever it is. But the point is what you say is we're going to create a set of sales plays organized around use cases. And the way we're going to conduct the sales cycle is we're going to market the use case, not market the product. The initial communication with the customer is, hey, people, we notice that people in your industry are struggling with, you know, retention or the hybrid work model, or they're struggling with, you know, cybersecurity in the cloud, whatever they, we think there's a series of problems here that we're very interested in. Do you have them? And then you can have some qualifying things. If you do, you know, call this number <laughs> and, then, and then we can bring them into the dialogue and we're scaling around. We're not scaling around in a tornado, to be fair, in a tornado, you can scale horizontally because literally the board has told everybody, get into cloud computing, you idiots. So so it's like, okay, I'm a cloud computing bee. What's your question? Right. So so you can occasionally you have these moments where you have this massive growth because a category is going through one of these huge waves of adoption. But normally there's a kind of a, a yin and yang with the budget, it's up and it's down, it's whatever. And particularly if we're hitting into a downturn, which it feels like we are right now, then use cases that are more urgent that are more compelling are going to get better funded and, and sales are going to close around them. And so reorganizing around the go-to-market around use cases. And I think that does scale. It, it doesn't scale quite as fast as horizontal, but it certainly scales more than the one-off, hi, I'm here to help you. What's your problem? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I certainly, I'm sure we both know of a number of companies very successfully applying that kind of use case prescriptive, I mean, challenger S kind of sales model, at a decent scale is extending that is then, okay, can we make sure that that is ported post-sale, i.e. our post-sales organization, our post-sale customer journey, all the functions that make up the post-sale uh, journey, which include, yes, customer success, but professional services, technical account management, are they all aligned to and ready to go in terms of delivering on the use cases that are being sold and prescribed in the, in the, in the acquisition process? And which then brings into the concept of ultimately what is being defined as adoption and successful adoption post-sale and does that align with the use case? And I generally see a lot of examples of, well, no, there's a disconnect there. What are you seeing in terms of that connection around, okay, we've got to drive product adoption as a product post-sales organization. This is our definition or lack thereof of product adoption, yet we've got sales over here selling use cases that make a lot of sense, but that post-sales isn't set up to deliver. Which is some version of, you know, the vendor journey disconnects with the customer journey. So, yeah, you cannot afford to be inauthentic. For a long time, we could afford that inauthentic. You know, we could just, in the license model, once the customer had bought and implemented a licensed product, they were not going to get let go of it. So they were essentially captive. But that's not the case. 
I mean, look, nobody wants to throw out Workday or Salesforce or ServiceNow or any of these companies. I mean, they all, they all, you know, they all want to keep the relationships. But there's more leverage now on the vendor side to say, hey, I, I'm not going to expand it. By the way, I am looking at alternatives, and I, if I'm necessary, I will shift over. And that's a much more viable club to use with, with a vendor. And vendors often need clubs. We can we can do that. And so then again, the issue is getting those two alignments between the sales motion and the value realization moment. And, and again, if we work backward from value realization, they'll be aligned. And one of the key signs I think is, does the sales proposal have embedded in it, not necessarily in the contract, but at least in the, in the surrounding PowerPoint understanding, metrics that we're going to use after the sale that validate that we got the value, as opposed to adoption metrics, which value that they're using the product, but they don't necessarily prove that they're getting value from the product. Yeah, I think, I think that's such an important statement and certainly I describe as the definition of adoption is the usage of the product in such a way that measurable value is created as opposed to there is a sign of life in our telemetry data. Someone's doing something in the product. Hooray, we've achieved adoption. I'm like, no, that, that adoption is not because adoption is there to drive retention and expansion. If you take the vendor centric viewpoint, any form of usage is not necessarily going to be optimized for driving then retention and expansion. If you're on the ground and you're doing training and support at the time of onboarding new users, then I think literally any form of usage is probably an interesting signal. But as soon as you get past that point, the other thing that's useful, by the way, for the product people to realize, you know, there's two thirds of our product that nobody ever uses. Hmm. <laughs> now we're getting to product led growth. And it's like, OK, maybe we should think about that. But that but that's a very by the way, that is a very vendor centric idea. That's not customers don't care if they're not using the product. The vendor does because they put all that engineering in, they want to charge for it and they're not getting any value. It's okay to focus on it. None of these things that are vendor centric are bad. We just shouldn't confuse them with being customer centric. Yeah, yeah. The notion of customer value realization and I saw one of your recent keynotes and you had a sort of a maturity sort of model and customer value realization was at the top in terms of, hey, this is where you've got to get to. This is, this is best in class. It's just, I mean, I named my organized company after value realization, it's value-wise. It just fascinates me that there is this combination of ambiguity and, and fear and uh, arguably even apathy around really getting down to the definition of what is that measurable value, kind of getting to like jobs to be done theory and service design theory to, when it comes to technology products. And I understand why it's been the case historically because the business model didn't compel the need to get down to that level of value engineering and value definition. But now I think the compulsion is there. Any commentary on why you think it is so hard for these companies to get down to that really intelligent definition of value? I think a lot of it has to do with the customer organizational model. So if you think about the customer's world, and there's an executive team that essentially is creating financial objectives and business objectives and whatever their own or enterprise objectives. And then they're translate them into OKRs and whatnot. And they, they kind of, they kind of go down through the organization and the middle people get the OKRs and they're trying, oh, you know, how am I going to make this work and whatever and they buy the software from this vendor or whatever. We're going to, we're going to try to implement all this stuff. Often there's not a very good cascade. Often the middle of the organization, the customer side doesn't really know why they've got budget. They just know they have budget. They know they're supposed to do these tasks. And so when the, when the vendor comes and says, well, tell me more about what you're really trying to do, A, they might be embarrassed because they don't know, or B, they, they feel like, 
I don't know if I should talk to a vendor about our plans or C, you know, this is above my pay grade or D, hey, you, you might be changing the productivity of my job or E, you might be actually designing me out of a job. So there's all these potential disconnect moments. So it shouldn't be surprising that there is a, a level of ambiguity and kind of just noise in the middle of the organization. And the further down you go, the, the more the noise distortion field happens. And so what it says is vendors must find ways to get executive sponsor dialogues going higher in the organization in parallel with normal account processes. And, and of course, people are very, they're very territorial. They, I'm the account manager, you can't go, or I'm the, the customer side. You're my vendor, you can't go above my head. And so there's all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't work. One of the things you can do is create thought leadership forums where you can meet out board of an account meeting to sort of come together as an industry, thought leadership events. But, but one way or another, if you're not connecting with the budget creating side of the house, sooner or later, you're going to run at risk of not being connected to the budget at all. Yeah, which is not a good place to be. We talk a lot about customer journey, customer value, how we drive kind of customer success in terms of, hey, how do we do this for our customers? I'm seeing more, we're starting to do a bit of it as, as value-wise, but it's always been weighted towards that dynamic. The opposite being, as a customer, here's what I'm going to prescribe to my vendors around the journey I want and the value I want, and I'm going to manage you as a vendor on that basis. Whereas my, my vendor management plan, instead of my customer success plan, my vendor success plan, and that coming from the either the business or indeed maybe it's a procurement organization-led concept. It's always fascinated me that it hasn't come back the other way and that there isn't even a, a set of technology that says, here's how, here's a set of technology designed for managing vendors in relation to the value they're delivering to you. Is that something you're seeing evolving or any criteria why you think that hasn't happened? Or? I'm not seeing it, but I think it's, a, first of all, I think it's a good idea and, and I think you should pursue it aggressively. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I think it's a great idea. The uh, Part of the problem has been, and you brought in procurement, which is great. So procurement's job is to actually break the dialogue between the economic buyer and the vendor. And in order to negotiate from a, a place of informational asymmetry. So they want to be as asymmetrical as possible. And they want to, it's actually, it's counterintuitive, except if you say, well, if I want to win the lowest possible price and negotiate in that way, yes, that's a very good way to, to do that. But it creates a disconnect with the value realization journey because you're trying to actually not make the vendor realize how valuable they could be. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's a weird tactic, but that's kind of what's going on. So that's very counterproductive. It's dysfunctional. I mean, it's, it's short-term functional, but it's long-term dysfunctional. But then I think that what the executive can do is to say, look, and if he's, you know, people have said, look, customers don't want to buy products. They want to buy outcomes. And so, you know, it's like Ted Levitt's thing about, you know, you want to buy a drill, you want to buy a quarter inch hole. Right. So, okay. So if we put outcomes based vendor relationship management as opposed to price based vendor relationship management. Yeah. I, mean, I think you're going to have to have some reform in the purchasing organization. And I think that the old school purchasing organization was price, price, price. What's your question? But I think in the new world, you say, no, price is not the number one objective. Value realization is the number one objective. And you guys aren't actually doing your job in purchasing if you, you know, don't achieve that objective. Yeah, yeah. What I've learned over the past year, and kudos to kind of Scott McCorkle and, and his team at MediCX is giving me some of this education, is the healthcare industry. 
does this very well. Now, they, they don't necessarily have the operational and strategic maturity that the tech industry does have in other elements. But when it comes to managing their relationships and including kind of vendor to customer, it's very much based around that definition and measurement of value. And so it, I kind of look at that healthcare industry in relation to what you just described there, Jeff, as a bit of a shining light of inspiration potentially for the technology industry. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm spending time there as well. So patient outcomes would be obviously the value realization of the healthcare industry. It turns out they're struggling a lot to, with two things. One is getting just the data collection around patient outcomes at scale is, is very, very challenging. Inside any particular healthcare provider, it's, it's easier because of these patient record systems. But across providers, it's a, it's a nightmare. And, and so that's number one. And then number two is the economics of healthcare. We've for some time, a long time, been saying, well, we shouldn't be paying fee for service. We should be paying for wellness, covered lives. And I think everybody kind of gets that's the model that incents the best behavior. But talk about a transformation and talk about the economic consequences of making that transformation too early. It's really, really hard. And I think the U.S. healthcare system is still struggling with that issue. And uh, we'll see where we get there. But to your point, the fact that patient outcomes is so obvious a metric for that industry does get the vendors aligned much, much better uh, than they otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Uh, last subject, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. This has been such a great conversation, but I feel like we will have done our listenership a disservice if we don't talk about digital. And so we can go back to customer journeys and customer value realization and the digital medium and strategy around delivering that. And there's been, I think, great strides made in the last, uh, I would say, two years in the B2B domain around this, certainly through platforms like Gainsight and Igmata's team driving driving what they do in their platform and, and, and others out there. But I think it's still very early days. And when I think about sort of shining lights or inspirations for the B2B technology industry to look at, I think of B2C. And I think about how they're leveraging and, and have done for several years digital and the underlying data and analytics to drive that sort of self-sufficient buying and and adoption experience. But we're certainly indexing heavily on the future of digital in customer success and and customer journey management, customer lifecycle management, how you drive net revenue retention. What are you seeing in terms of any emerging trends or failed starts or underinvestments or whatever it might be regarding this subject of digital customer management in B2B? So one of the things that's key about this B2C versus B2B comparison is the economic models are structurally so different that we have to be careful that we can't take very many best practices from one to the other. So the B2C world is a very transactional world where essentially there's no room for a customer success manager in the middle of a B2C transaction, right? It's it's all product-led growth. It's all going to be diagnostic. It's all going to be algorithmic and whatever. And and it's clear that those algorithms get smarter and smarter and smarter. and, and, And all of that is very, very good. B2B interactions, first of all, they are arbitrage across many relationships. And the, and the interests of those relationships, they're not necessarily conflicting, but they're not always aligned. So, for example, the departmental manager may have a set of objectives that his or her boss or boss's boss does not have. Or different departments have different objectives for the same vendor service you know, from a particular vendor. So there's a level of complexity. So when we say data... You know, I think we have to be careful because log files, we can still use log files for usage and that, that can still feed back to particularly the engineering team, I think it's very valuable. But I think the, we need a more nuanced set of, of signals 
which I think invariably involve conversations with people that have to get captured in some sort of digital system. And we've always struggled with that. We've, whenever you say somebody's going to enter data into another system, you think, no, they're not. I mean, they're just not. So, so how can we do that? And, and we're getting better at it. I mean, we, we, there are self-capturing things. And because we have things like Slack and, and, and Google Hangouts and all these, we are being able to capture more threads than we ever were able to do before. And we can apply uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to extract from natural language insights and, and sentiment and things like that. So we're, I think there's a bunch of move, moving up there. The point is what we can't do and what we did all my adult life was leave it anecdotally in a person's notebook in a person's pocket. My first experience with customer agency was a, an experience at Nordstrom where a person that had waited on me before pulled out a pocket thing and found me and, and, and said, oh yeah, the last time you were in here which was like, whoa. Uh, and that was a culture at Nordstrom and there were a hundred people that were really good at it, but they're not a hundred thousand people that are good at that. So it's gotta be digital. And I think the creativity of this next generation of digital is gonna be in the B2B relationship management as opposed to the transaction management world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. Jeff, this has been a great conversation. It's been, I can't tell you how long I've been looking forward to to doing this since the uh, opportunity arose. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you've delivered to all of us for so many years now and just continually excited for your new releases, including your latest book, which I know is a slightly, I don't know, I don't know what you describe it as a pivot, a tangent, but around the meaning of life. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, framework, framework, okay. yeah. framework. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I highly, highly encourage people to check out The Infinite Staircase, which is, is that latest book. I appreciate you joining today. For anyone listening who is looking, hey, how can I better follow your work and, and your insights? How can people follow you best, Jeff? There's a blog on LinkedIn, and I think the LinkedIn blog, that's where I try to put my current thinking. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. So I encourage all of you listening to uh, check that out. Thank you for taking the time to join us. And whether you're joining us on YouTube or listening to the podcast, please obviously follow up with any questions, comments, feedback, give us a rating as to whether you uh, thought this episode was as valuable as, as I know I found it to be. Jeff, thank you again, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon.